Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, read to us. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I don't know how many times I've seen these two words um, come onto Netflix as I've clicked on another binge box set. If you go onto YouTube, someone has so much time that they've collated Grey's Anatomy, Friends, 24, um, loads and loads of previously on, and then there's a screen capture um, of the film or TV show that it's been on. There's just hundreds and hundreds of times that I've seen those two words. We need to say previously on Matthew, because we were in Matthew, if you remember, way back in January. Remember that month when it was really cold and dark? Those days are just around the corner to depress you. From Matthew through to Easter, we were in the book of Matthew. Matthew is a gospel. It's the good news about Jesus in in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, the minute his quill touches the parchment, he wants to tell us who Jesus is. It's, It's the big reveal. Not who do you think Jesus is. Who has God revealed his son to be? He is David's greatest son. By the time we get to uh, chapter 4, it's not just that Jesus is a new David, the greatest David. He's also the new Adam. He's, He's the one that God leads by his spirit into the wilderness. And unlike the first Adam, who when he saw the serpent fell, was defeated, this Jesus, who's the new David and he's the new Adam, he goes into battle and he succeeds where the first Adam fell. But Jesus Christ, according to the pen of Matthew, is not just the new David, he's not just the new Adam, he's also also the new Moses. We got that from chapter 5, verse 1, where God's son ascends a mountain. Where have we seen that before in the Old Testament? And God's son speaks God's words with authority to say, if you follow me, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, an internal revolution happens. The Spirit of God goes to work on a stony heart, And a stony heart is replaced by a heart of flesh. Light comes into darkness. Hope comes in place of despair. And men and women, boys and girls, when they become Christians, it does not happen from the outside in. It's a revolution on the inside that changes how you view the world. So you have new priorities. You have new goals. New priorities. So you have saltiness and lightiness. You're going to be the light of the world. You're going to have hope And you're going to share it as much as you can. And it changes every aspect of your life. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It affects your attitude with anger. It affects your attitude to marriage. It affects what you look at. It affects affects your internal world so that you pray and fast because you long to know more of who this God is. And in knowing who he is, you long to have priorities of the next world as you live in the here and now. That's chapter 5 and chapter 6, and now we're in chapter 7, verse 1. We've finished previously on, and now King Jesus, as he's still up on the mount, he wants us to listen very carefully to how our relationship should look. 
if we follow Jesus. If chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, if we've had this internal revolution, if we're Christians, how does it change how we relate to other people? That's uh, really the heartbeat of verses 1 to 6, and boy, are they challenging words. That's why you need a holiday before and probably after as you look at them. But it tells us, point number one, it tells us about the relationships that we need, the relationships that we need. Look at verse 1, chapter 7. Do not judge. Do not judge. Four times in the first two verses you've got this word judge, and uh, if ever you are doing a word study in the Bible, you come across the need to go to a dictionary. Now, um, you pick up the Oxford English Dictionary, there's a thought, or if you're lazy like me, you just Google it. Does anybody use dictionaries anymore? No, I don't think so. One or two, hooray, long may it last. There are two people, you need to keep them in print. Heaven forbid they ever run out. But you Google it, or you go to a good old-fashioned dictionary, and you look for a meaning of a word. It's the same thing you do when you're not sure what a word in the Bible looks at. But the Oxford English Dictionary is often not the best place to look. If you're a scholar, if you're someone who looks at what Bible words mean, there's something called a lexical, not a leprechaun, a lexical or a semantic range. There's a range within boundaries, within parameters, about what a word could mean depending on the context. And so let's do a little bit of work. This, this word, uh, judge, it could mean evaluate. I'm really sorry I was going so quick, officer, but actually I'm right. 38 is appropriate, not 30. Um, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to put that melon back because it feels a bit squidgy and I'm going to choose the one. I'll leave the squishy one for someone else. I'm really sorry, and so on. You evaluate speed, you evaluate fruit, you evaluate all the time. That's the shortest cue. I'm going to join that one, not that one. And then you realize they're turning right and you get frustrated. You evaluate all the time. Today's a sandal day, today's a trousers day, today's a bad hair day, today's a... and so on. Is that really what Jesus says? Do not judge. It could mean evaluate. You, you make a, a reasoned argument. You make a, an evaluation according to characteristics. If you ask uh, someone in the street, do not judge. Absolutely right. Jesus is absolutely right, says uh, the person on the street in uh, downtown Epsom, because no one has any right to say that anything is wrong. You'll hear that line of thinking in the world. Does Jesus mean that? No evaluations are possible. No absolute right and wrong. No standards are set. How dare you say that Jesus is saying that, verse 1. But the problem is, if that is true, that we can't make any evaluations, any judgments, look at verse 6. We'll look at it more, in more detail shortly. Jesus immediately makes a judgment statement. He's calling people. Some people are dogs. Some people are pigs. That needs exploration. But Jesus is not saying there's no absolute standards. He's not saying you can't evaluate. You can't make a, a judgment call because Jesus does that in verse 6, for example. So that's one range of meaning. It's evaluate. It's to consider according to characteristics. But at the other end of the spectrum, in the Old Testament especially, but also in the New, the Bible teaches us and shows us that in the future, God will return. His son will return a second time to judge the earth. God's justice will pervade. Evil will be done away with. God will evaluate with perfect knowledge the people that have trusted Jesus have eternity of happiness in heaven to look forward to. Those people who've rejected the loving rule of King Jesus have the eternity of hell to look forward to. There are stark words, and that, that's the range of meaning that you see in the Bible. It's evaluation right through to a perfect judgment that only God can have. 
So what do we make of this words, verse number one and two, four times, do not judge? Jesus is saying, don't judge like only I can, but you should make judgments when you evaluate. You should make judgments as you look at people and as you look into the world. But as you make those judgments, your motive is absolutely critical. As you look at other people, are you motivated to make evaluations and judgment calls and comments and words to retain and restore a relationship? Or do you want to make a judgment about somebody because you want to wound, you want to harm, you want to distance, you want to diminish someone, you want to destroy them, you want to make yourself look great and them look small? Is that if that's your motivation as you make a judgment, the Lord Jesus says you should never act in that way. You should never act in that way. As you make judgments, as you discern, as you make comments, as you move towards someone in love and humility and kindness and gentleness, that's always to restore and maintain and keep and improve and develop a relationship, never to diminish it. But this is kind of abstract, and so Jesus gets concrete, or should we say wooden, in verses 3 to 5. This great metaphor that's like out of Grimm's fairy tales to some degree. Look at verses 3 to 5. Why do you look down, excuse me, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the, the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There is a lot in this. What's it trying to get across? Whenever there's a metaphor in the Bible, you don't read by it. You try and think, what is Jesus trying to say? Jesus is saying that spiritual sight is a big deal. It's very hard to see clearly when there's something in your eye, whether it's a, a two by four, whether it's half a tree, this kind of comical uh, thing so you can't get close to people because there's a massive plank in your eye, or whether there's a speck in your eye that you can't see clearly. Anyone knows it. If you've got a fly in your eye, if you have to wear contact lenses, um, if you've had a bit of grit, it's so painful. Your eye starts to water. It's irritating. You then get irritable if you're like me. It's so painful. And then you try and get it out yourself when you can't. You do all sorts of really masculine movements of putting your legs apart and stretching your eye apart, hoping that it will fall out. You can't quite see it. So then you've got another eye that you're looking into the mirror, but that's not clear. What's Jesus saying? As your eyes are watering, just thinking about it. It's a spiritual picture that actually doesn't describe your eyesight, but it's describing your soul. It's describing your heart. You and I have sin in our hearts that, that makes it really hard for us to see ourselves as we should. There's something lodged in our souls, in my soul, so that uh, it ruins the ability for us to see clearly. There's loads of examples. I have something in my heart that drives me to be a really successful business person. And because that's there, I will trample on you if you get in my way. Because I see that clearly, I see you in a very murky and a low light. I've got this grudge in the past. You treated me poorly in the past. That, that's a splinter in my eye. So no matter what I do, that's acceptable now because you hurt me in the past and I'm going to get you back. You can't see how you're acting. and you, you justify it in your own heart, or I do, because of what happened in the past. If you're a Christian, there's a failure to grasp the gospel at a deep, lasting level. You fail to see that God loves you to the ends of the earth, to the cross and back. 
But because you don't grasp it at a deep level, you look for your approval with other people. And they control you. When any of those happens, and loads of other examples, what you need is not to just go on blindly trying to get something out of your eye. What you need most of all is a friend. You need good relationships. These are the relationships we need. Someone to come and help us. I had the experience a year ago. This is true, not made up for this message. I never make anything up, not much. But uh, I had the uh, privilege of going to St. Helia Hospital on my back. I had the, the gapy gown experience because I had something that needed to be removed from my lower eyelid. Um, they put some eye drops in, so everything went very, very distorted and big, like a kind of comedy circus mirror. They then put duct tape, I think it's medical tape, but it felt like duct tape, to open up my top eyelid. Then I'm laying on the back of my gapy gown with duct tape on the top of my uh, eyelid, and someone came towards me with a scalpel. This is a true story. There's this huge medical light above me, and they came towards me. All I could see was the scalpel. All I wanted to do was to close my eyes so that they would disappear. But it's the one thing I couldn't do. It wasn't in my eye, but it's pretty close. Just imagine there's something in your eye. It's a speck. It's sawdust. Do you want someone to help you get it out? Of course you do. But someone comes at you with a drill. I'm just going to get that out for you. Someone comes at you with a screwdriver. This is what I need to remove that. Even if someone comes at you with a little pair of tweezers, you think, mm, can you put the tweezers down? Just go for a tissue. Go for something softer in case you get it wrong. We need people who know what they're doing, who know us, who know their own hearts, and who come gently, humbly, carefully, skillfully like the doctor whose care I was under. You don't want anyone coming at you with pliers or a drill. It's the metaphor Jesus is using to say, how dare you look at the huge speck in someone else's eye when you can't even see clearly yourself. You can't even get close to them. You don't love them nearly enough. Be careful. Be gentle. And make sure they've given you license and the okay to speak into their lives. To, to speak if they've got broccoli in their teeth. To, to say if, they, if, they've got, if they come out with a toothpaste around their lips like one of our kids often does. Be gentle. Because spiritual sight is ever so important, and so are relationships. They are a mess worth making. But look at what Jesus says. How do you go about it? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to this plank in your own eye? This is where the comedy value kind of gets turned up again. Jesus is talking about this person who can't see themselves. They have a lack of emotional intelligence or spiritual intelligence. So, so they're there with this beam walking towards you, but it's so big and so long and so great, there's, they're in no position to help you. They can't see themselves. There's no self-awareness. It's the person, whether it's in the church or not, who are far more aware of other people's struggles and not their own. The people that like hiding in the long grass, that just sort of take aim at people, Words are used to wound, not to help and heal. Maybe the metaphor should go the other way. If you have a speck in your eye, it should look like a plank to you. If it's in your eye, you should be aware of the plank before you get anywhere near someone else's speck. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Unless your sins and my sins loom large to us, if there's not a deep awareness of our own struggles with anger, with anxiety, with fear, with uh, speech issues, that we're aware that actually it was our child that cleared, I kid you not, cleared 
a number of French, lovely French people. We cleared a whole carriage as one of our children was having an absolute meltdown on the way out of Paris. We're surprised we could use the train the next day. Unless I'm aware, who am I to say, this is how you parent, unless I'm deeply aware of my own struggles and failures. Who am I to say, why are you speaking so harshly? Only because you can't see what happens in the car on the way to church. That's why. We need a deep awareness of our own planks before we go anywhere near anybody else, with gentleness, with wisdom. We need that. Unless our sins loom large to us, unless my sins are greater than yours, I'm in no position to help you. What I need from you is someone to come alongside and to say, yep, one sinner telling another sinner, one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. I'm not looking down upon you. Let me put my arm around you. Let's pray together. Let's talk it through. Let's remind us of the gospel. If I know my heart better than you know my heart, there should be no uh, animosity. There should be no uh, arrogance. There should be a deep humility that comes from the gospel. What's in my eyes, what's in my heart should look huge. What's in your life should look pretty small. Let me remind you of the gospel. We should be bold in confronting our friends because God loves me so much that he died for me. That's boldness. But I should be humble because I'm such a mess that Jesus had to die for me. See that? Boldness, confidence, but it's rooted in deep humility that comes from knowing that we're in need of a saviour. I'm a nobody, I'm a complete idiot, but Jesus has saved me and rescued me. Do we have a community like that going into a new term? We're nobodies, but we've been rescued by God, and that makes us somebodies. Not in the world's perspective, but we are children of the King because the King is rich in mercy and abundant in grace. And because of that, we've got something to offer. If you're a failure, welcome. We're all failures. Why betide we ever look like we've got it all together and that people leave us because they think they don't fit? Let's be honest about our own need of the gospel every single day. It's the relationships we need, absolute transparency. But that comes from the heart we need as well. Look at verse 6. Now it gets even more uh, Grimm's fairy tale like Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet. This is the best part. And then turn and tear you to pieces. Thankfully, when we were on holiday in France, we looked after guinea pigs, not dogs or pigs. If it was dogs or pigs, I would have a great illustration. But it wasn't. We didn't read the small print, and so we had to look after two cochons de indie. I think that's how you say it, guinea pigs. And uh, these little um, animals with small feet, as one of our children called them, you had to provide water for them. You had to kind of get rid of their muck and mess. You, it was quite a hassle. It was quite a burden. So someone who said, I would love to have a guinea pig at the start of the holiday, at the end said... Maybe we should just hire one. <laughs> Maybe we should get a toy one, a, a rubber one. I know very little about animals, but if you are an animal lover, which I kind of am and not, depending on the day, at least I know that animals need food. And you need to be careful about what you give them. They need tender love and care. And look at this humorous Grimm's fairy tale illustration. You've got an owner, and it's the owner's fault. It's the owner's responsibility to give the animals what they need. And what happens? 
the animals turn around having not received what they need and think, well, that's not edible, but you are, so I'm going to eat you. It's a really funny Grimm's fairy tale kind of uh, bittersweet ending to the story. It's a one-sentence parable to say, if you will not give me what I need to eat and drink, I'm going to end up turning around and eating you because you will sustain me. It's interesting from verse 6 that the owner is not that foolish. The owner does not give rocks or stones to the pigs or to the dogs. But then the owner is foolish because what does? Well, what do they give? Verse 6 says, sacred pearls, putting two words together. They give something very, very precious to animals that don't know the difference. They give something very, very valuable that won't feed their immediate desire and need. And I have scratched my head thinking, what is this about? In Matthew, there are two very, very short parables. Here's one, Matthew 7. There's a second also about pearls in Matthew 13, verses 45 to 46. It's about the pearl of greatest price, and I think they're intentionally linked. In Matthew 13, you have, you have somebody who finds a pearl, the greatest treasure, and realizing not its temporal value, but realizing its worth, its beauty, its majesty. They sell all they have because they realize its preciousness. And they say, I'm going to forgo all of that. I'm going to put all of that on eBay because I want that. That's of greater eternal lasting worth than all the things I own. And I think this verse and I think that parable, it's only three verses in the whole of Matthew's gospel help us to explain about our relationships and the heart that we need. What's the pearl? According to Matthew 13, and I think reading back to Matthew 7, the pearl is the gospel. The pearl is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of the king. The king who by his majestic grace came from heaven to earth to rescue you and me. The king who went to the cross. The king who God rose from the grave. The king who seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Here's the king. And here's the kernel of truth, the pearl. This man in Matthew 13, sees the pearl and sees its beauty and worth. The animal, in Matthew 7, sees the pearl and thinks, that's not going to satisfy my desires, I still have an empty stomach. But you will, I'm going to eat you. The animal is just thinking about the here and now. The human in Matthew 13 is thinking about eternity and sees not the fact that the pearl is useful for their stomach, but sees the pearl is beautiful. Here's what we have about our relationships then. Some people, when they hear what Jesus has done, they find him beautiful. They find him altogether lovely in his holiness and his majesty. They say, wow, when the penny drops and they see the greatness of what God's grace has done in Jesus. It's overwhelming. It's too much. God would do that for me. He knows the depths of my heart, but he loves me the same. I want to sing that from the rooftops. I want to share it with my friends. God would send his son. That is amazing, electrifying grace. But then there are others who are more animal-like. And all of us are animal-like before God's grace rescues us. They look at the pearl and they think, I would have to give up this for that. They evaluate. They judge. I would have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I would have to stop going there and that. I'd have to change. It's not just an add-on. I can't follow Jesus and. No, it's Jesus or. They don't understand. 
Notice, though, it's not the fault of the pig or the dog that they can't eat the pearl. It's the responsibility of the owner. The animals are just being themselves. The animals are just going about their business and they've got empty stomachs. They're starving in Matthew chapter 7. But it's the owners who are foolish enough to throw them things that they can't eat, things that are too precious for them. What's Jesus saying about our relationships again? What's he saying to our evangelistic efforts? We require great wisdom as we speak to our friends about the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be year 7, year 8, year 9, through to year 12 at school, even 13 or in the workplace. Great wisdom, abounding humility, bathed in prayer from beginning to end. We need to be attentive to God's pace in people's lives. If we think in one conversation, one conversation without any prayer beforehand, we can say, here's the God who made the world, here's the fact that he will judge the earth, here's the reality of heaven and hell, and here's the hope of eternal life. That would be too much for most people to bear. We need to pray with deep humility in God's timing, giving people what they can bear. We need wisdom, we need humility. This is the pearl of great price. It's the gospel. God is not, Jesus is not saying that we need to be relativistic. This is absolute truth. There's truth found in no other name. There's hope in no other name. But we are responsible as we give out the gospel, as we share the gospel, as we live it, and as we teach it, as we preach it, and as we want to share it with our friends at school. Sometimes we need to go slowly. We could win an argument in an instant, in an hour, but you could lose the person. Jesus is saying, it's the owners who are responsible. The animals need to be fed. The gospel, the pearl, needs to be guarded. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they'll trample you under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It's the relationships we need, transparency. It's the heart we need that's humble and profoundly saturated in wisdom. But where do we get that heart as we turn to the Lord's table? Relationships we need, the heart we need. Where do we get the heart? I don't want you to mishear me. Sometimes we will receive um, hatred. We will get spat upon. We will be laughed at as we share the gospel. Sometimes that's absolutely unavoidable. No matter how careful, how wise, how much you pray, no matter how humble and careful you are, sometimes you will receive hatred because it is an offensive word, the gospel. Sometimes you can't avoid it. But Jesus knew that too. Jesus knew that if he came from heaven to earth, we would trample on him. We would disown him. He's the perfect pearl. He's the perfect example of it. He's the greatest joy. He's the most precious person the world has ever known. And all of us are animal-like when it comes to the authority of Jesus. We want to trample on it. So John chapter 1 says, Jesus, he came to his own and his own received him not. We rejected Jesus. Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, says, we esteemed him not. Jesus was despised and rejected, but surely he took up our pain, and he bore, he carried our suffering. Jesus was pierced for, us, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But by his wounds we are healed. Friends, if your heart has grown cold, if your heart is hard, the only place you'll get a heart that ministers to people, that sees our own sins as huge, 
that has a heart that is humble, not arrogant, that doesn't want to compare and look down and look up at people. As if you see the one who is the perfect pearl, as if you see Jesus for who he is. See what he did for you. See who he is for you. And only then we say, Lord, if you've done that, if you did all of that for me, if you've given me free salvation, I'm going to live for you and it's going to be a joy. I'm going to evaluate. But you are worth giving up everything and everyone for. Sure, my friends can laugh at me. Sure, I might get shunned at playtime. Sure, the water cooler might be hard. I'll be seen as a bigot. I'll be misunderstood. But I will do that because you did that for me. That will humble you, that will firm you, that will raise you up. And I pray that as we start a new term, that truth will make us into a community that all of us are aware that we've got huge, great planks out of our eyes. We can laugh at each other in the right way, out of humility. We're not laughing at them. We're laughing together. We're a community that has a deep awareness of our need of grace. And when we see that, we'll be able to speak the truth. And as we do that, we'll be a light to the world. Let's pray.